Do you like to learn about random wild stuff? You know, the things you didn't think you needed to know about, then realize you should? Then welcome to Nothing Off Limits, the podcast that gives you one place to go for something different. Impress your next party guest with your unusual body of knowledge. And if you dig the show, get more information at ladyfoxentertainment.com and subscribe, rate, or review. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Nothing Off Limits. I'm back. Did you think I gave up? Hells to the no, people. Come on. You know me better than that. I just really needed a break, man. Seriously, I put out a new episode every single week for over a hundred weeks in a row. I think I deserved a little break, right? And look at it this way. Now you guys had a chance to catch up on all the old episodes. I was still seeing tons of downloads, even though I wasn't releasing anything new for the past several months. So I thought that was kind of cool. And also, I was starting to feel a little uninspired, to be totally honest. You know, I had some PR people approaching me like, hey, do you want to have my client on your show? And people just sort of looking for free promotion. And I wasn't feeling inspired by the topic or whatever they were doing. And so I wanted to wait, kind of recharge my batteries, and then also decide, what do I want to focus on? Well, here's a new one for you. I am so excited about today's guest. His name is Kevin Hong. Kevin is a successful entrepreneur. He serves as an advisor to several startups these days, but previous to that, he grew his own startup deal flicks up to a $15 million valuation, and he started the venture out of a van. The man van, you may have seen it in the news. He's also the best-selling author of The Outlier Approach, How to Triumph in Your Career as a Nonconformist. Now, when you start talking about nonconformism, especially in business, that's going to catch my eye. Kevin's been featured in CNBC, Times, Forbes, New York Times, LA Times, Korea Times, countless other media outlets globally. And his writing has also been featured in CNBC, Forbes, Inc., HuffPost, and many more. As you're going to find out today, Kevin's no typical entrepreneur. He really is a real hustler, and he's the kind of guy that we all wish we had the guts to be. Now, you can check out the show notes for links to the book's video promo and Get this, I'm offering a free signed book to the first 10 people who respond to this episode via email to me personally, michelle at ladyfoxentertainment.com. The first 10 people who respond will get a signed copy of Kevin's book. And now with no further ado, welcome, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Wow. Thanks for, thanks for the intro. That was awesome. Yeah. And I think it's so cool that we met on Twitter. Yeah, we did. Mm-hmm. So I just want to dive right in because your story is fascinating to me. And I want you to give sort of like Cliff's Notes version. Tell us about your adventures and your foundations. Yeah. Um, so I guess I like to say in my book, I was 21 years of FOB. Um, so in essence, I moved from Korea to America at the age of two. And my parents spoke mostly Korean at home. And I wasn't introduced to English until the age of like four or five, kindergarten, you know, pre-kindergarten, what have you. So a fob, just for those who don't know what that is. Fresh off the boat, someone who okay. you know, moved to, to a new country. And once I started getting used to English, you know, second, third grade, then we moved back to Korea. And then now my Korean was behind. And I was there from third grade to ninth grade. And then once my Korean was supposed to get caught up, we moved back to the States. So for 20, so I read in my book for 21 years, I was neither really fluent in English or Korean. And I didn't really understand what language fluency meant because a lot of times 
people would be really good at one particular language until the age of at least like six to nine or, you know, 15 or whatever, and then move to a new country country. So they understand what it is to have a command of a language. But I didn't really have that luxury until my roommate, uh, my senior year in college finally said, oh, your English finally sounds like an American. I, I literally like cried. And um, what was fascinating about that whole entire childhood experience was that I, I, I gained a lot of advantages in the business world by understanding body language, just really paying attention mm. to people because I had to like constantly, you know, look at my um, classmate next to me, you know, figure out what the homework is, trying to figure out like what the teacher was saying. Um, and it was constant like social survival, like trying to adapt over and over again. So that would, became a huge advantage uh, later on in my career, surprisingly. Yeah. That's really interesting to me because there are books on that, like how to face read. What are they feeling? What are they thinking? Are they leaning towards you or are they sitting back and, and doubtful about you in that kind of stuff? And so I find it interesting that you did that on instinct rather than reading a book about it. Yeah, no, it was it was crazy because, um, yeah, at a young age, I, I kind of started to notice like pupil dilation when I talked about. Whoa, certain- really? I have trouble seeing that. How'd you see that? I don't know. I just paid so much attention to facial expressions as a kid. So no one taught me that. And then another example is, you know, Paul Ekman's work, um, psychologist, he talks about micro expressions. There's just mainly seven muscles uh, in the face that for like a quarter of a second, that just shows someone's real like um, temperament or, you know, Mm -hmm. reaction to a situation. Mm -hmm. And I was... I was starting to notice that I think early in my twenties and then I randomly like found out about Paul Ekman who had decades worth of studies in that. And, you know, time and time again, you know, some of the things that I was noticing just happened to be a study of someone, you know, who actually studied, studied it before. And I think it just, you know, I didn't realize it until I was an adult. It all went back to my childhood of being, not being able to be fluent in a language. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. It was like the circumstances sort of pushed you down your path because you were forced to hustle your way into getting stuff done. Yes. So tell us about your first foray into doing business. It was in college, right? Yeah, absolutely. So this is really funny. So I moved, when we moved back uh, to the States from Korea when I was 16, I really didn't want to go to school. And my dad had this, you know, elaborate... um, background in academia, PhD, my mom had a master's and they wanted us to have an American education. Well, I, you know, I elaborated in my book, I really wanted the American dream. And I didn't think just being a doctor or a lawyer and accountant um, was a, like a meaningful life or a career um, from my perspective, because my parents kind of had that in that generation, I want to do something completely new. Mm-hmm. So when my parents came here and just try to force me um, to go to school, like I really didn't want to. And it was actually my dad who found out that I didn't apply to a single college after the University of California deadlines had passed. And then he ends up submitting my applications. Oh, my gosh. It's Kevin Hong. He's like forcing you. <laughs> Boy, you are going to college. <laughs> so he was, I mean, he was so angry. Um, you know, I was lucky to get accepted to a couple. I mean, while my grades were okay, they were never like excellent. They're just, you know, slightly above average. And so I enter uh, University of California, Riverside, and, you know, I didn't think I was going to graduate. And back then, um, you know, I know it's hard to imagine, but my English wasn't fluent. So I didn't think I could get a job in the States right away. So I thought I had to go back to Korea, get a job there, then come back, something like that. And I was just walking around campus one day. One guy, you know, just comes up to me and he says, hey, you look like a smart guy. Um, You should join my company. We're offering internships. 
I meet him at Starbucks, um, you know, a few days later, he gives you this presentation. It's all about like how much money everyone's making. And then at the end, he says, it's $400 for this internship. Cause you're <laughs> <laughs> I've been through so many of those. Oh yeah. And at that time, I think it's just the American way of, you know, internships. Oh, maybe in America, you're just supposed to pay for your internships. Cause you're, I was a college freshman. No one had an internship. So I ended up paying. Um, and that was, that was my first, uh, that's how I started, um, mm -hmm. in network marketing. I know a little bit about network marketing. I worked for a company that did quite a bit of that and, um, it's an interesting culture. They're kind of cutthroat, huh? They're very cutthroat. They're very cutthroat. So how did you make your way and not lose your money? It, you know, this company, um, was actually publicly traded, um, Excel communications. Um, you could, you know, anyone can Google it up. It was the, the fastest growing network marketing um uh, company at that time and they were selling long distance phone services you know beepers um this is circa 2003 and 2004 so cell phones have been out for a few years yeah like nobody's using and, beepers anymore <laughs> yeah exactly and it was refurbished cell phones so some of the guys within the team devised a hack so we would literally sell beepers and long distance phone services and refurbished phones in underserved neighborhoods like compton and englewood mm -hmm. and um, you know, these are real dangerous neighborhoods, um, in America, but we, we just literally went door to door and, you know, we set up shop in front of like, you know, the 99 cent shop and whatnot to, to promote these, um, products and back in college in the dorms, we would sign up all these sales reps and we, we would spend about two days in underserved neighborhoods and like five days at school recruiting. And then. Um, in about three months, I had a downline of about 1,500 <laughs> reps. Oh, my God. And then, and then I was making about $10,000 a month. And, and the best part was my English was really bad. So my first five sales were Koreans. <laughs> so what was your motivation? Was it the money? Um, you know, at that time, it was finally something that I was really good at and I was always this, as you can see from my book, I, I was always the um, ugly duckling or the black sheep in my family. I, I didn't like school. I liked sports. I liked going out. Um, I liked hanging out with my friends. Like people were always fascinated for me because I couldn't speak the language. So I was always trying to figure out what they were thinking or saying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I had this um, fascination with people at, at such a young age. And because it was just like a different world all the time. I was always this outsider trying to like become an insider you should be in the fbi <laughs> <laughs> don't you think you can like read people and you can like kind of like weave your way in and out of industries and and you tend to get people under your wing very easily and quickly i don't know <laughs> but you I'm should not, be a I'm negotiator not. you know yeah, i haven't hit the gym really for like three years now so that's <laughs> the prime that's fixable you think so? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe it's time for a career change. So we'll see. <laughs> so that's amazing. So you grew your own downline. You had this huge amount of people working for you. Um, did you feel inside yourself that you were ripping anyone off if they weren't performing the way you were? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of the older guys, I would question, you know, the older guys because they all had like Ferraris and Porsches. I mean, they were, I mean, I was making 10 grand a month. Some of the top performers were making 40 to 50 grand a month. Wow. So, you know, one of them had like a Ferrari and a Porsche. It was crazy. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, I, I questioned it a lot. And I felt after a while, like, 
you know, they, they would try to brainwash everyone, but particularly me because uh, or in, in the high school that I went to prior to college, um, Crescenta Valley High School, it was about 40% Koreans. So me coming from Korea, I really just uh, hung out with Koreans uh, during high school. Yeah. And I, I was just very insulated. I really didn't know. And they said, hey, this is kind of like the American way. Then you can invest in real estate. Uh, you don't have to do this forever. You know, you, you're not, you're not, you're one of the good guys. Um, so then even though I was taking advantage of, you know, certain people, let's say in Compton and Inglewood, and, you know, I knew the long distance phone services wasn't always great. Um, I, I felt pretty bad about it. You know, I didn't feel too good about it, but I thought because everyone else was doing it in the company, I thought, okay, they're publicly traded. Maybe it's justifiable, you know? So that's the kind of thing that's tough for me. It's like, if I don't really believe in what I'm doing, or if I think that the end result is not going to be great for the client or for the customer, I don't feel good about selling it. Like you said that you were brainwashed. You were like, no, this is the way, this is how it's done in America, this is what we do. And that's horrible. That's like basically saying, it's totally okay to rip people off, Kevin, no problem. <laughs> yeah, and I, was, and I was very naive at that time because my parents, all they only know or knew academia. Like, yeah. you're, America, you're Asian, you have to become a lawyer and accountant. A doctor. Yeah, you're you have to use your brains become an engineer. And for me, like I, I don't just because I'm Asian, I it doesn't mean I have to do that. At least I right. should try <laughs> being something else. Yeah. And uh, for them, for the other guys, it was just kind of like, oh, no, this is how it is in America, then you have to be a, a doctor. You don't want to be a doctor, right, Kevin? I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> so it, yeah. was, it was a confusing time. And I didn't feel too great about, you know, some of the deals that the customers were getting. But you felt good about the car you were driving, I bet. I, you know what? It was, yeah, it was pretty good. Um, <laughs> gave me, you know, his, his uh, Porsche for a while. And then, you know, things kind of came to an abrupt end, which I disclosed how it happened in, in chapter one. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> And I'm going to leave that a mystery. So everybody out there is like, what happened? <laughs> I want to read this book. So, so the network marketing thing sort of fell apart. Yes. Okay. Tell us about the transition from when this whole world that you started to build around yourself fell apart into your next moves. What happened? Yeah. So it was, it was hard um, transitioning at first because, you know, I was, I was cocky, you know, arrogant, typical, you know, teenager. And, you know, I, I literally kept- And network marketer. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. I would, um, I, I would, you know, carry $5,000 in my wallet just so I could at that time. And then now I'm, I'm a student and I've never liked being a student. Um, but I realized two things at that time. I was like, wow, you know, I'm this Korean guy and I was like the youngest regional director and, you know, I have broken English. I was like, what if I mastered English really well? Like, just like, like an American, sound like an American assimilated perfectly. And the second part is what if I actually learned something like accounting or finance or marketing or something and then graduated in four years, I could probably, I could probably do really well. So mm. it was the first time I realized that maybe what I was thinking was true. Like I don't have to listen to mom and dad and all, you know, like subdue myself to all the, you know, potential Asian or model minority stereotypes and become an accountant or a computer science guy or whatever and just be whatever I want to be. And I could become successful in America without going back to Korea. So I, I really realized that. And I, and I started to believe it because I was signing up Americans left and right. 
Um, this is interesting to me because when I was at that age, I wasn't thinking in like business terms at all. I was just like, okay, I just want to have some fun at college, you know, and, and like, when's the next frat party? Well, it was, it was, it was hard. So at first I, the first thing I did was join a frat and try to be a college kid. Okay. All right. And then once you're kind of at the other side and you realize like what you're capable of, like, it's really hard to um, be excited about a keg of beer, you know, right. like a college kid and yeah. you know, do a keg standard play beer pong. It's just, I literally tried for a quarter to become a frat boy. And then <laughs> I was like, wow, this is so not fun. <laughs> and then, and then that's, you have to, doing. you have to be like less intelligent. I think, <laughs> I think well, <laughs> well, well, no well, offense to the frat boys of the world. Hmm? Less, exper- less experienced, you know, less exposed. I, I would yeah. say. Okay. Yeah. A little sheltered. <laughs> yes. And then the next question was like, well, I want to get back into the real world. Like, how do I just come out like guns blazing again? Like, how do I set myself up for that? So the last about two and a half years, because I crammed all my classes into three years um, instead of four, because I only finished two classes my freshman year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I, I literally had to jam everything. So then it was just the last two and a half years was all about self-development until I graduated. I love how you just have this thing. You really are a hustler in the true sense of the word. I said that in the beginning and I believe it because you decide on something you want to learn about and then you just dive into it completely until you understand it and then you prove that it can be done and then you're on to your next thing and you try to keep building on that. And that's really fascinating to me because a lot of people just sort of flit about and try something. Oh, that didn't work. What's next? Yeah. No, it's, I mean, I, I think that's just how it is. You, you know, through your hobbies, you kind of figure out um, sometimes what you're good at, what you're bad at. And um, even, for example, me publishing a book, I started writing in my diaries when I was about 17, um, my senior year in high school, because I knew my English was not that great. And then I did it for 17 years and, you know, recently it became a book, basically. So that that was another hobby turned side hustle so mm-hmm. it's just been my theme for my for my year um for my whole life i guess yeah before we dive into the book you had deal flicks and there was so much press around this and some of you out there listening may remember seeing this the man van tell us about how you brought this company from a van from a couple guys in a van traveling all over the u.s to get customers basically or clients to a $15 million valuation. <laughs> sure. Um, so I kind of have to paint the picture of how the movie theater industry is like before we dive in. And the movie industry in the U.S. is very antiquated. Um, all the deals are done through steak and handshakes, whining and dining, that kind of stuff. So if you don't have any FaceTime, it's really hard to close a deal. And to kind of elaborate, DealFlix is like a price sign for movie deals. And it's as if you know, you're getting Fandango deals at a discount via Groupon or something like that. So imagine if like Fandango and Groupon had a baby, it would be like, (laughs) to say, and since we're offering discounted tickets, it's a hard sell because studios don't like discounted tickets. Furthermore, um, if you rewind four or five or six years ago, if you partnered with Fandango or like a movietickets.com, you couldn't party partner, partner with another third party such as DealFlix. So then we had such a hard time closing deals. And after signing up 100 theaters, I found out, I did dug in, did some analysis, trying to find out what are the commonalities, why are they signing up, what's the sales 
um, cycle like? Um, what does our what does our sales pipeline look I, like look like? And I realized 99 out of 100 signed up only after some kind of FaceTime. And the more FaceTime and face-to-face interactions we had, um, I realized that they were more likely to sign up. So once I found a correlation, I realized, how do we get more FaceTime? And back then, it was just really expensive to get FaceTime because you have to fly out, rent a car, you know, book a hotel, mm-hmm. drive out. Um, I was more, we were more concerned about the time it required to sign up theaters and the financial overhead. Mm-hmm. And after running some calculations, it was just like, wow, this is going to cost so much to sign up, you know, a hundred more theaters. So I went back home and then I looked at my mom's van and then I took out the middle seats and I threw in a mattress in there and I was like, oh my God, I could sleep here. And, you know, Evan's a tall guy, but he's a skinny guy. So Evan and I can both sleep here and we can sign up and get these gym memberships and drive around the country and just live here. And I went back and I talked to Sean and Zach and I was like, hey guys, I have an awesome solution for our uh, B2B theater acquisition strategy. And this is when we, you know, I don't think we had that much money. We had like 100, 150K or something like that, um, some seed money. And we were about to run out of money in like three months. And then they just looked at me like just really angry. They just thought I was kidding at first. (laughs) (laughs) And then that turned into a situation. They're just like, dude, get out of here. Get out of here. You're like, this is impossible. And they, and they said that, you know, I would last, you know, two weeks and then, you know, it ended up becoming two years essentially. And, um, they, they thought that I could live in a van, but how, the, the next question was, how are you going to get Evan and all the other sales guys to live in a van with you? You know, it's one thing to live in a van, but to get others like to, to yeah. sleep in a van with you, like sleep with their boss, that's, that's crazy. Right? <laughs> so, um, so, you know, they, they were just surprised and then, you know, so when, they did it, but they did it. Yeah, we did it. And um, that had to be a pretty stinky van. No offense. A bunch of guys. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, jeez. We super clean. We had but there were moments when it got really stinky. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, because guys aren't traditionally neat people. I mean, not the not guys that are young too. I mean, they just like kind of throw their garbage over to the side. And I mean, I, in the past, I've dated guys and like their car was like a trash dump. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, we were, we were, um, I'd like to say that we, I had to keep the van super clean. And I learned my lesson because if one guy gets sick, the whole team gets sick. Even in the interview process, I had all these dietary constraints later on, um, curfews. um, And we, we had to go to the gym every day. It was just, I had to, I literally nano managed um, everyone's work performance. Oh my God. That had to be very stressful. It was very stressful, um, for me as well as a team. And I applaud everyone, you know, was it worth it? Oh, it was, it was worth it. I mean, it was one of the happiest times of my life as well. I mean, cause I was down to about 12% body fat too. At one point I almost had a six pack, like a four pack or a five pack. Cause we were going to the gym twice a day. Yeah. I remember reading that. So this is a great segue to the book because what you were doing essentially with this man van, right, was being a nonconformist. You were trying to find a different way to do something. But I want you to share with the audience some tips because there's so much in here for people who don't know how to launch a business or a project or something new that they're working on that they've never done before. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. So I guess like the first example I want to share since we were just talking about the van is um, the ability to just kind of like re-engineer 
your reality. And this was an experience I went through uh, living in a van because personally, I didn't think I could last. I wasn't sure if I can last more than two weeks or even two months. But what was fascinating about that experience is that your body and my, my, my body and my mind start to adapt and accept living in a van as a reality. So even when the man van, um, those campaigns were over after two years, I was just so uncomfortable in large spaces, in large rooms. Whoa. I lived in a van for an extra year after that. Oh, God. So do you live in like a tiny studio apartment right now? Well, right a now tiny I'm condo? a new gig um, as the chief of biz dev for Cinemia. And I just moved from Chicago right now. So as I'm waiting for my place to get set up, I'm just staying at my my folks' place. Oh, I thought you were going to say you're living in your van. (laughs) I was going to be like, Kevin, stop. (laughs) All right, so back to the tips um, for folks. So re-engineer your approach. If something that you're doing is not working, try to find something different and new, a new angle. Yeah. And, and discomfort could just, you know, after a while it might feel not, you know, very uncomfortable or or inconvenient, but after a while, like once you're, once you set your mind into it, um, it just becomes a natural part of you. Mm -hmm. And that's, I discuss a lot about that and about re-engineering your reality. And I give an example of, um, someone who went through extreme trauma, um, growing up and, I, I, I try my best to explain that and how it applies to the business world in the book. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. You do dive into psychology a lot, which is why I really like the book, because I'm really into psychology and understanding people. And you're right, there is such a tie in that regard to doing business. There was another thing, too, that you mentioned. So back to tips for people out there listening. You went on and on a lot um, in a good way about the importance of the team and the talent that you're bringing on. So tell us more about your approach to recruiting people. And you did it from the very beginning with your downline, with your network marketing organization, through DealFlix, through all of your adventures since. Tell us about your secrets there. Yeah. So I think everyone's obviously motivated for a different reason. They see financial success in a very different light. Like, Someone might see a million dollars as, you know, um, power and, you know, money um, and just influence. But while others might just think, oh, a million dollars, like tuition for four of my kids. Mm-hmm. And when you kind of understand why someone is financially motivated or why someone is incentivized, um, you could reverse engineer that into any sort of sales pitch. And you can't think of those as absolute terms. Like someone might be 20% motivated by their kids, you know, 40% for influence, um, 30% to retire, et cetera. So you kind of have to mix and match and kind of figure out how you can paint the best story um, for someone. And I realized that really quickly when I first started doing network marketing, when I realized some certain students want to join network marketing just to get some kind of sales experience. Mm. while others wanted to get an internship. So I would paint it more like an internship slash learning experience. And other students were just straight up uh, financially motivated. So I had to tailor different pitches for uh, different students or different uh, sales candidates. And I reapplied it years later when I was, for example, trying to get people to live in a van with me. Um, Everyone was motivated for different reasons. And I had to kind of find a universal theme um, that made everyone kind of 
like rally under this big umbrella. And that's, I guess, I guess that's what the company culture was about. And I ended up writing this 20 page culture doc, um, to have everyone just get really excited about living in a van. <laughs> wow. So, but, but this idea around recruiting people, it wasn't just about selling the vision of what you were doing, whether it was network marketing or the DealFlix van adventure or anything after that. It was also because you were working smart. Um, and what I was interested in when I was reading the book is this idea around finding people who are really good at what they do so that you don't have to do everything yourself and so that you can delegate stuff off, right? Yeah. So tell us more about that because I think there was a little uh, locking of horns with your partner, Sean, at DealFlix about this kind of thing, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I've been the type of person that's always been really interested in working with, you know, very talented people. Like I love people who put in a lot of work, um, who are very passionate about, you know, anything. And, you know, Sean was very different from me. Um, he was a buddy of mine that was actually my upline back in the network marketing days. So we knew each other for about 13 or 14 years. And he was the type of guy that just kind of felt uncomfortable um, not being the smartest guy in the room. Like, of course, he won't always explicitly say that. But, you know, you can tell, you know, in my book from certain comments, like, you know, we're never going to hire someone who came from a better school than mine or, or when yeah. he mentioned something like Zach went to a better school than my school. And, you know, he looks down on me and, you know, it was very unfortunate because I was trying to help him see the value in, in hiring, you know, the best and the brightest. And it's okay to maybe have that mindset of like, I have to be the smartest guy in the room when you have like three co-founders. So that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Your company goes from like five, 10, 30, 50, 300, whatever it is, uh, chances diminish very quickly <laughs> that you won't be the smartest guy, that, right. you, that you'll be the smartest guy in the room. Right. So. But you can still be an effective leader and not be the smartest guy in the room. And Absolutely. yeah, I mean, we have the perfect example as the head of the United States. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, um, but, but yeah, so I think this, like this idea behind that is really important for people to latch onto out there listening is that, you know, don't be threatened by people who have a ton of knowledge or experience. Like they could really help you at the end of the day, you're still the leader. Um, unless of course they have like machinations and they want to come in and like take over, which I've seen that a lot of times I see people come in and like their whole agenda is to just make chess moves to take over a company, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, it, and it's so unfortunate because I considered Sean, uh, one of my best friends for better or worse. Um, because he was one of my first, like I would consider like my American friends because he was my, he was the person who put me, uh, under his wing during the network marketing days. So he kind of taught me the ropes on how things work here and to kind of rekindle that and start DealFlix meant something to me. But as the company grew, um, it was very challenging because I've, I've always liked to delegate and bring the best talent while, you know, he didn't feel comfortable, um, with that kind of approach. So mm. we end up clashing obviously. And, you know, I'm forced to make some very, very tough decisions in the book, which I tried my yeah. best to have the reader navigate it with me without picking sides. And it right. was the hardest part of writing in my book. So, you know, yeah. 
I mean, I will admit, like, it's kind of like watching, you know, a, an interesting drama on TV. You're like, not sure what's going on here. Like, I was like, what's going on? Why is Sean so threatened by Kevin? What's happening here? You know, and so I was, I was sort of intrigued. This also leads me to another thing that you pointed out, which I found really interesting in terms of finding a way to stand apart and to get a new project or business off the ground. Please explain the concept of market versus spread, because that's sort of like a finance thing, isn't it? Yeah. So the concept, I try to break it down in the simplest terms. Um, you know, when I, you know, when I was younger, I, I guess I'm pretty young. Um, I'm 33. But um, when I was younger, I loved driving from Riverside, California to Las Vegas, which is like a three hour drive. And then I would party over there. And I would look at some of the older guys and, you know, they're, they're getting fancy tables and, you know, these nightclub tables with bottle service, they could cost thousands of dollars. And I wanted to party like them without paying, you know, the same price tag. And one day I devised a hack. So I, I went over to the guys and I said, hey, you know, um, I'm here with some girlfriends that are really hot and, you know, they love to sit down and have a couple of drinks with you guys. And I just, before I introduce you to them, I just want to get to know where you guys are from, you know, just make sure you guys aren't weird. And then I'll get to know all the guys um, for the next five Did you months. actually say that? <laughs> just want to make sure you guys aren't weird. Yeah, yeah, some something like that. <laughs> and then um, I would just memorize, I would just go to the bathroom, take my time, and just memorize their names, you know, and save them on my phone in case, you know, they, they call me out later. You are so FBI. <laughs> That's my new nickname for you. <laughs> and then I would I would go to the girls and say the same thing. I'm like, you know, me and my guys, we're from New York. We're a bunch of investment bankers, whatever. And then, um, you know, I would say, you know, we, we, we just noticed you guys. We'd love for you guys to swing by at our table. Um, we just want to get to know you guys a little bit more before I introduce you to them, just in case you guys aren't weird. Same thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so my God. I, I, what was like, the reaction to that? Were they like, that? uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm going oh, to prove to you that I'm not weird, man. <laughs> so, so then the, the, the ladies part was a bit harder because I had to kind of memorize that as I'm just walking over there. So I made sure I got the guys, um, occupations and names down. And then I would just introduce the two. And then once you introduce them, like, you know, they don't really question you. They're just happy to hang out. Girls are happy with the free drinks. Guys are happy because yeah. they're meeting girls. And it's Vegas. And it's Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, they get, um, you know, I would get free drinks and I would meet girls, um, you know, and I Hustler. would, yeah, I would move up a couple levels because these guys were rich and these girls were really attractive. And, and I, I kind of spun that idea and I decided, well, how can I mimic that um, in the business world? And, and the best example that I give uh, in the book was when we were first trying to recruit a real CTO, Zach, um, who was a really, really talented engineer. And he didn't want to sign up because our website looked crappy and, you know, we didn't have any theater deals and, you know, we, we weren't making much buzz. And he was kind of on this trial period. The theater didn't sign up because our website was crappy and we had no buzz. And then we couldn't get on the news because for both those reasons. So then what I did was to Zach, I told him, hey, we're going to get on the news and then we're about to sign up this theater. And then to the news outlet, we're going to get a new engineer, a new website, and we're about to get signed this theater. And then uh, to the theater, I said, you know, we're going to get on the news and then we're going to get a new engineer. And then within 
a month, I was able to get all three deals when I had nothing. So from, I was able to create essentially another spread, kind of like the nightclub example, and get mm -hmm. all three of those um, after about a month. So Market versus the spread. Yeah. I love that. So, but all of these approaches make it sound like you're so social and you're like this outgoing guy. And I was surprised to learn about you in the book that you're actually not this incredibly extroverted guy. Yeah, it's it's definitely like going out and socializing. Um, I get exhausted pretty quickly because... Vegas is exhausting, whether you're outgoing or not. It is, absolutely. But I, you know... I think when I was younger, I was more of an extrovert, which kind of helped me develop the social skills. But as I grew older, I became more and more of an introvert. So, you know, recently when I took the Myers-Briggs test, I think I scored about 55 or almost 60, 40 introvert versus extrovert. And I remember even taking it back during my DealFlix days, I would, it would be about five to 10% more introvert than I am extrovert. So, um, you know, for, for me, I, you know, at a young age, I constantly had to socially adapt. So I had some, you know, I guess like natural social skills, but I always looked at it from a perspective of because I'm going to run out of social juice. I, I, I literally call it social juice amongst my friends and business colleagues. Yeah. Um, I, I know by, by, by the time it's Friday, Saturday, I know I'm going to run out of social juice. So I need to save. I almost think of it as a gas tank. And I think like, how can I optimize on the amount of meetings that I have? Um, you know, like the, uh, how can I become the most friendliest? So when I'm about to go to a big trade show or a convention, I would literally not go out for the two weeks prior. So I almost deprive myself of social interaction. So then when I see my clients, I'm like the happiest puppy ever. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm mm -hmm. seeing you. I can't believe I'm seeing you. <laughs> you know, like, how have you been? And then by the time it's like, if it's a week long convention, by the time it's Wednesday or Thursday, then it's, I'm still like energetic. Yeah. I've been deprived. So I have to almost calculate that. And wow. I remember doing, during deal flicks, I had to tell Sean, like, we have to kind of have, you know, this policy. I just get so exhausted during team week. I can't do this week long ski trip. I'm going to get so exhausted. So they, we would literally carve out a Kevin day, which would happen like around like a Thursday or so. Um, mm -hmm. A week before the last dinner on Friday, where I just kind of for a day I can you know go to my own coffee shop for about six to eight hours, uh, just get a massage, relax, read books, you know, write, write in my journal, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. and then come back and rejoin the team, and then you know the team understood that because we would explain it ahead of time. I love that. I totally relate to that, and I'm sure people listening do too. Or it's like, it's hard for me to work at an office. Monday through Friday, um, because for so many years now, I've worked virtually or remotely. I, I can work with teams, but I really need that time to focus on my own stuff. And I can't constantly be distracted by other people all day long, every single day. It totally drains me. And so I really feel that. And so I, I like this idea. I'm going to take that as my takeaway today is that I'm going to go back to um, my company and say, hey, I need a Michelle day. <laughs> Uh, I'll blame it on Kevin Hong. <laughs> but it is this thing. It's really interesting, though. It goes back to that psychology stuff where it's like not 
everybody can function in this like energizer bunny way 100% of the time. Like everybody needs to, at some point, I would imagine, recharge their freaking batteries. Some people have to recharge by being social. That's their way. They go out and have a good time with their friends. Other people need to go and be by themselves. And you're more of the latter, right? Yes. Yes. I don't like the word networking, but you do use this philosophy of vertical versus horizontal networking in the book. And I found that to be a really cool takeaway too, is how to approach talking to people so you don't get drained. So you're not constantly feeling like you need to be out at events and doing stuff in order to meet people. Tell us your approach and your philosophy to that. Yeah. When I, when I watch people network, it's just kind of like, let's just go out there, you know, be loud and proud and, you know, just like, you know, throw everything against the wall. Let's see what sticks type of approach. Um, but if you think about it, like if you are, let's say hypothetically an engineer and you go to like engineer club, um, your return on investment per each person that's an engineer is going to go lower and lower and lower and lower because your social group is overlapping with the same group. Mm -hmm. And I call that the horizontal or the, uh, yeah, the horizontal. Yeah, horizontal. You're, yeah, you're hanging out with your peers. It makes zero sense. So I also call it the frenemy zone as well, because you're kind of, you need the same resources to become successful, whether, you know, you're the same batch mates to get the same investor money, or you're, you know, a group of lawyers trying to get into the same law school, um, or you're the same uh, colleagues talking crap about your boss, but you're all going <laughs> to fight, fight for that promotion in six months. 100%. 100%. Um, because there are, I mean, in... I have a couple different things that I do, and one of them is voiceover work. And whenever I see like a voiceover gathering of like a bunch of people who are all trying to do the same thing at the same level, I'm like, why in the hell would I want to go to this thing? It's just a bunch of people who are doing what I'm doing, and like I don't see the value in this. What's the point? Like I'm just I'm just going to socialize and hang out with some folks, and then yeah, have them be like, well, what have you done? Well, what have you done? You know what I mean? And then it, like you said, frenemy. It's like this is stupid. <laughs> exactly, and you know I think most people. I mean, even I do too. Like I spend more time in my frenemy zone because at the same time it's good emotional support because you're going through the same thing. Mm. If you're able to just take a step back and spend more time on your vertical network. You know, it could be anywhere from your mentors or mentees, um, hanging out with your bosses or subordinates or hanging out with different people in different industries. You're, since they will give you access to their network, you can scale significantly faster um, for your social network, giving you, you know, so much leverage. I mean, that's probably why, you know, all these schools and workplaces emphasize diversity. Yeah. So no, I love that. There's a podcast that I did with a man named Michael Roderick. And um, I encourage you, Kevin, to check it out. And then everybody out there listening, if you haven't listened to that episode, check it out because he talks about connectors. And Kevin, you also mentioned connectors in your book. And I think it's such an incredible topic because it really teaches you a lot about the value of connecting with people and not just networking with your peers. As much as that is nice as an emotional support network, it's not going to get you anywhere and it's also going to drain you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any other tips from your book that you want to share as like little you know nuggets that people are going to be lured in to read more? Yeah. I mean, one thing... Um make the reader understand is that, you know, a lot of times your greatest strengths could be your weakness and your greatest weaknesses could be uh, strengths. Um, I, I know that sounds very like cliche advice, but you know, I'll, I'll give 
you know, your listeners, like my example. So for example, like I'm not a big Asian guy. Like I'm just, you know, I'm like five, six, five, seven. I haven't hit the gym for like three years. So I'm like small and, um, I don't, <laughs> are you trying to say you're chubby? I'm not chubby, but, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not like, love yourself, Kevin. <laughs> or, or chief of biz dev or like a typical sales guy. I'm not that like assertive, big, you know, intimidating, you know what I mean? Or someone, as, yeah. you know, someone who was a corporate executive recently, like I'm just not an imposing guy. Mm-hmm. So when people see me and do deals with me, um, when I'm aggressive, like I get, I get, I get a free pass. Like I can be way more aggressive than the bigger guy who's like six foot four has muscles and it just has an imposing figure. Like he could, he, he doesn't have the luxury of saying what he wants, doing, you know, taking an assertive approach and being like, Oh, that's Kevin. You know, like he doesn't mean it that way. Like it could be very intimidating. So <laughs> I noticed that also applies in the dating world. So, <laughs> um, so mm-hmm. for, for, I'm hearing another episode coming out of this. <laughs> so, you know, when, when, especially like with a lot of the stereotypes that um, people might have about Asians in, in our culture, like I knew I could like dial it up so many levels and, you know, people still want to do business with me. And when I approach it from that angle, no one forgets me. Like everyone, any, any conference I go, any trade show I go, oh, they remember, oh, Kevin Hong, like he just, you know, hit the me crazy up. man. <laughs> Yeah, he, he tried to sign me up while we were having drinks. Like, what a crazy guy! But he's so friendly, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, there's so many angles you could you could play into that, and I loved for so many years before I wrote the book, before I started writing on New York Times or LA Times. Like, I didn't go to a top, you know, eighty school or anything like that. And when people people saw me, I would constantly, you know, I was constantly underestimated. So when no one sees you coming, like you, there's so much you can do. There's so many cards you can play and they just think, well, you know, he's young or, you know, he looks really young. He's not imposing. He didn't go to great school. And there's so many cards you can play um, when you're, when you're the underdog. And I, I think a lot of times people don't see that. Yeah. Um, and in my book, I really try to teach or help the reader, uh, you know, digest that and try to lay it out in their business world on how they can use that towards their advantage. Yeah. I mean, you've really built a personal brand, so to speak, which that's another thing. That's a whole nother topic that I'm just like, ah, I'm tired of hearing that yeah. these days. But um, but it is something that I think people have done throughout the years um, without it having a term attached to it. You did it unknowingly. It sort of developed into this thing um, where now you're this guy who you just explained who you are, the nonconformist. Like you just kind of are out there and you're willing to go for it and hustle and and be aggressive. I'm curious, what authors or what business people inspire you? Well, I think I really liked um, Walter Isaacson's book about Steve Jobs. And I know he has, you know, Ben Franklin and a couple other notable people. Um, Mm -hmm. So I really enjoyed interviewing people for my book, like, you know, the guy, uh, Scooter Brown, and how um, he partnered up with uh, Size Manager for Gangnam Style to bring it to the to the States. And, you know, another executive that grew up in communist Romania. So I I really liked his style of writing. But from people who wrote self help books, I liked, you know, believe it or not, I like Robert Greene, um, 48 Laws of Power. Mm -hmm. uh, I have that book part of seduction. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of these are like classics, and people forget about them. 
And I liked it because he's honest to kind of also like speak like a villain. And, you know, because every entrepreneur, um, a lot of entrepreneurs, I, I think when they write self-help books, they just paint it so rosy. Like, you know, like <laughs> it's not, it's not pretty. Like you, you, like you crawl past the finish line and they're too afraid, afraid to talk about the, the guts and the gory side yeah. of, of business. And I tried really hard um, to talk about my failures and how it is to be in the dark. Um, and I tried really hard to, to paint that. Yeah. And although I don't have like a Machiavellian uh, tone like Robert Greene does in his book, um, I, I still wanted to not be afraid. Um, and that's what I took away from his style of writing. Um, another person that I really liked is Ben Horowitz, um, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Mm-hmm. And I actually copied his format. So basically, he talked about his own life experience uh, for like, you know, 25% of his books. Then he talked about um, his learnings for, for the rest of the book. So I, I try to mimic that. So the first um, third of the book, it sounds very autobiographical. And then it leads into the lessons I learned and then the people I interview. Uh, mm-hmm. that took a nonconformist approach um, in their business game. So, th- you know, those are some of the inspirations um, that I got for my book. I love that. Uh, what's next for you, Kevin, besides having lunch with me today? <laughs> and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, so, you know, right now I just took on the role as um, the chief of biz dev um, for Cinemia. And it's a really exciting role. We're, we're, we're in a bar fight with uh, MoviePass right now. So, um, I love being kind of like that wartime executive, <laughs> I guess, yeah. to, to take from uh, Ben Ben Horowitz's book. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I think it's an interesting role because, you know, we're already in four or five countries and we're trying to do the Netflix for movies at the movie theater in the States. And they've been growing um, 50% month over month uh, for the past year or so. And we were recently mentioned on CNN, um, CNBC as well in the past three or four weeks. Um, so yeah, I hope you know listeners get get a chance to keep an eye out for for Cinemia. Um, I think it's going to really change um, the way people watch movies. I love it. What about a book tour? You know the book tour. So I'm I'm kind of wrapping things up. Um, I I just started um, a company called the uh, Nonconformist Media. <laughs> um, nice. Yeah. So what we do is, you know, it's something that I, I hired, you know, one of my good buddies to run it. So um, I'm kind of like the chairman or the CEO and he's going to be the COO. And um, I'm just going to help a lot of entrepreneurs just write their own books. So after I wrote my book, um, there's a pocket of entrepreneurs that sold their companies anywhere from like a million to like a hundred million and they don't know what to do. So they, they just, they want to write their own books too. So I'm, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm writing um a book for you know one of uh, one an entrepreneur that sold his last company for fifty million. So I'm I'm ghostwriting it for him. So wow. I decided to start my own little nonconformist uh, uh, media yeah. company. I, I need the secrets on how to even get to that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's fun. I mean, I love I love writing about other people. I mean, that's because to kind of uncover uh, their true inner being. And, and, you know, as a kid, like I, I always wanted to get to know people so, so deeply. So, um, it's actually like a side project for me that, that I'm truly passionate about. So it's a lot of fun. 
it's pretty awesome. Well, there's so much more that I'm sure is going to be ahead for you. And yeah, wherever my passion takes me. So right, because it keeps pivoting. Yeah, um, I really appreciate you taking time today and for sharing your story with the listeners and uh, inspiring them to go ahead and not be afraid to go after what they want to do and, and to to really take a different angle. Be a nonconformist. It's cool, everybody. Thank you so much for your time, Kevin. Thank you so much, Michelle. Everybody out there listening, please check out the show notes for links to the book. And again, if you want a free copy, signed copy, that is, please email me, michelle at ladyfoxentertainment.com. The first 10 get a copy of Kevin's awesome book. Have a great topic you'd like to hear discussed on an upcoming episode of Nothing Off Limits? Email us at ideas at ladyfoxentertainment.com. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate the show, and go to ladyfoxentertainment.com to sign up for our email list and to check out our resources page. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.